right. Well, let's look at verses 19 and 20 again of 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 19. It says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we're going to revisit the spirits tonight, <laughs> uh, that topic of who those spirits are. Uh, where where I, I kind of summarized things last week where I left off was saying that Jesus preached to demonic spirits in the realm of Hades between his death and resurrection in order to proclaim an ultimate triumph over them. That's how I phrased things last week, that uh, Jesus went to the demonic spirits in the realm of Hades and he proclaimed triumph over the demons between his death and resurrection. So let's uh, dwell on that just a little bit longer, because there's more that I want to say about that. I don't know how interested in this specific topic you are. We could stay here for the rest of the evening. We could just be here for a few minutes. So I'll just try to read the room a little bit, okay, <laughs> and, and see if I need to move on or if we want to camp out here. But uh, I am convinced that we're talking about demons here when it talks about spirits. I'm more so convicted of that than I was last week. I think verse 22 kind of indicates that, that too. It's the last verse of the chapter where it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it does seem like that's an aspect of the theme of this section. Angels and authorities and powers being subjected to the authority of Christ. Now, um, a place that I wasn't, or an area where I wasn't prepared to discuss last week, I talked to Jim about this a little bit right after last week's study and read through this, <clears throat> is that there are confinements for demons in this present age. When we think about demons and demonic activity and angels and angelic activity, uh, we know that that's going on all around us all the time. Scripture says as much. Now, if we look at just your life experience, you might not have a lot of things you can point to and say, oh yeah, I, I was wrestling with that angel here and I ran from that demon there, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I think it's, it would be a little bit unwise to try to nail that down anyway. But it is going on. It is going on. And uh, what we see in Scripture, I think I mentioned this last week, is we get a lot of, a lot of truths about angels and demons, things that pop up all over the place but we don't really get a lot of our answers to all the why and how questions. <laughs> so we get all these facts that come up, but then you say, well, how does that work? Well, Scripture doesn't really go into that. And that's kind of the way it is with a lot of stuff, isn't it? But <clears throat> when we think about confinements for demons, I'm gonna, that's the word I'm comfortable with, so I'm just going to run with it, confinements. There are three ways that Scripture talks about this, and we could be talking about three different places. We could be talking about the same place. Not 100% sure on that because, again, we're just getting little bits of information. We're not getting a full explanation. But the first place is the abyss. The abyss. And this is what Jim made reference to last week in Luke chapter 8. In Luke 8, we see Jesus interacting with the man who had a legion of demons in him. And uh, do we want to turn there? I don't know how excited we are about this, so... Okay, the people who wanted, who wanted to say no, you should have said something, because we're going for it. Okay, turn back with me to the, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8, and we'll look, 
starting at verse 26. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. And can I get a volunteer to read 26 to 33? 26 to 33 of Luke 8. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead, Stacey. All right. I'm sure many of you remember that story. But for the purposes of this evening, we're just going to look at where the demons were going. So they were inhabiting a man. And there were many of them inhabiting one man. Okay, that's an interesting aspect. And they were imploring Jesus, this is the end of verse 31, imploring him that he wouldn't send them into this place, the abyss. The abyss. Now you start asking, where is the abyss? What happens in the abyss? Why wouldn't they want to go to the abyss? Don't have a lot of answers to those questions. But what you can infer, what's implied in the text, look at verse 32 again. Where did they want to go? No, where did did they want to go? Yeah, pigs. Now you think, okay, why would they want to go into a bunch of pigs? Because then they all went down in the lake and they all drowned, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, so demons don't know the future. Um, And can you drown a demon? Well, I don't think so. Uh, You know, I think demons kind of transcend water and stuff. They don't have lungs like we do. Uh, So, okay, they went into the swine, the swine drowned, and then presumably demons went off somewhere else. So, it seems as though if they would have gone to the abyss, they would have been confined. But by going off into the swine, they weren't. Okay? So, that's confinement number one when we talk about demons. Thoughts on that? If you have questions, I probably won't be able to answer them, but thoughts on that? Okay? James? Oh, sorry, Jerry. Well, yeah, it is interesting. Uh, One thing to recognize from that is, Anytime Satan or demons want to do anything, they've got to get God's permission, right? You see that in the book of Job. You see that in various places in the New Testament. And this is just another instance of that. Demons want to go somewhere, and God gives them permission to do so. So even if it was just for the demonstration of he is Lord over them, uh, you know, that's good enough for me. Jerry and then Steve. Jerry, did you have a thought? Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. And so when we're talking about demons, we know we're not talking about a physical confinement, right? But that uh, even by the nature of the term abyss, that has the idea of like a vast, open, kind of endless hole idea, right? And, uh, but it's a place where they can't get out. That's right. Steve. Oh, oh, there you go. They're showing their true colors there. Okay. (laughs) Joseph. Yeah. I don't know if it's safe to assume that, uh, but it's it's safe to assume because, and you're not even assuming, it's just believing that there were many. Uh, So we don't know how many that is, uh, but based on his behavior and the testimony that of the demons themselves saying we are many, you can definitely assume that there were more than two or three, right? There were many. Steve. And the demons are nothing but pleasure parasites. And they don't care where they get their pleasure from. Yeah. Yeah, demons are very inward focused. Uh, Satan, of course, 
very concerned about himself. It's why Satan fell. He was prideful. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan was all about himself. And so it's no wonder that demons would be the same way and would just want to do what, you know, is pleasurable or, or whatever for themselves. Because demons do have a will. That's something that we learn about angels throughout the course of the Bible, is that they are created beings. They are not made in the image of God, but they do have a will. Angels have a will, which is pretty interesting. Andrew. And we have the ability to exercise dominion on earth. That's our call. And that can be done in an evil way to accomplish Satan's purposes rather than the Lord's purposes. So, absolutely. Okay, well, let's uh, consider another location, another confinement. This is a place called Tartarus. Not tartar sauce, Tartarus, okay? And this is in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. We looked at this last week. Second Peter... Chapter 2. So head toward the back of your Bible there. Second Peter 2, verse 4. Let's see. Who's got, um, who's got a King James? Do you have a King James with you tonight, Joseph? Okay. Char, do you have one? And then who's got maybe an NIV or something other than New American Standard? Okay, all right, so let's, um, let's hear it from the King James, verse 4. Uh, I think Shar's got it, Steve. And then, um, Mandy, if you wouldn't mind reading from the NIV. So go ahead, Shar. Second Peter. Second Peter, Shar. <laughs> That's a great verse, though. I, but, uh, yeah, it, it's more encouraging than the one you're about to read. <laughs> so. Okay, and from the NIV. Hmm. Does anyone have a translation that says anything other than hell? I thought maybe we'd get something, something different between the two. Okay, they all still help. So Tartarus is uh, what's, well, the phrase cast them into hell is actually one verb in the Greek. It means thrown into Tartarus. The word Tartarus is found in the verb. And Tartarus was a word used by that culture at the time. It was taught that Tartarus was the lowest depth of hell. That's, that was their cultural terminology for that. The lowest depth of hell was called Tartarus. And so Peter here in his second letter is using the culture's term to say that there are certain angels who fell, so these are demons, who have been cast to that place, Tartarus, the lowest pit of hell. So if we're looking at different terms for confinements, that would be on the list then, Tartarus. And we could just put, technically, hell, as all of our translations seem to say. Okay? Thoughts on that? Again, no questions, just thoughts. (laughs) Okay? One more. We also looked at this one last week. It's in the book of Jude. And this is called uh, the pit. Um, let's see. What are they? Oh, yeah, the, the pit. Uh, you could also call it the place of eternal bonds. 
Well, that B looks kind of funny, but that's all right. This is in Jude, verse 6. Jude is just one chapter, so when you say Jude 6, it's just referring to uh, the only verse 6 that's in the book of Jude. That's a couple pages after 2 Peter, so just turn toward Revelation. It's the book right before Revelation. And when someone read verses 5 and 6 of Jude, verses 5 and 6, who's got it? Mike, go ahead. All right, so there are certain fallen angels who are in eternal bonds under darkness in some sort of a dark pit, as Jude describes it there. So you've got these three concepts of confinements that are listed out for us in the New Testament. Are these the same place? Maybe. Are they different places? Maybe. What is the prison in 1 Peter 3? Is it summing up all these places? Is it talking about one? Well, it's nigh impossible to know, isn't it? But we do have these indicators in the New Testament that there are certain demons presently who are confined and are unable to be active in the world. Now, um, we don't see any indication in the New Testament, just in case your mind's going here, we don't see any indication that more and more demons are being locked up until all of them are locked up. We don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, we see that in the last days there's going to be lawlessness increasing demonic activity increasing in the world. That doesn't mean there are more and more demons because there's a limited number of demons. God's not making more angels right now. But their influence is going to grow even though there are some who are confined. Okay? Uh, again, getting into the how does that work, we can't answer all those questions, but these are just the truths that we have revealed to us in the New Testament. Melissa? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, it is, I mean, it's worth noting that it does use the word angel. That's in Revelation 9 11. Um, Revelation 9 1 1. All right. Uh, they have, okay, I'm not getting into numerology. Okay. No, stop it. Stop it. It was just a joke. <laughs> they have as king over them the angel of the abyss, and his name in Hebrew. Yeah. Again, okay, there it is, right? You know, we, we have enough in there that, you know, it seems like it's using the word abyss. It's talking about a dark place, perhaps with eternal bonds. Uh, it's hard to know. If it's, okay, is that a fourth place? Is that just another description of the same place? We don't know. But that is a thing that exists. What was, what was your question? Uh, I don't know if I remember. I see. Yeah, but I'd say... That's, there's great potential for that, but we just can't know for sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting, huh? Okay. Um, so now going back to First Peter 3, 
where he says prison. And the reason why we're doing this short little study here is because of verse 19, where it says that Jesus went somewhere to preach to spirits, and this place can be described as a prison. Uh, Because I'm taking the view that these are demons, I think that's a pretty solid view, that would mean in some way he's communicating with spirits who are in this type of situation. 19. Yep. That's where we are tonight for our study, Steve. 1 Peter 3, 19. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I believe is going on there. And again, it's for proclamation, not to offer them any kind of second chance, not to, um, you know, take them out or anything like that. But he's basically proclaiming to them that he has triumphed, he has ultimate victory, that their fate is sealed, absolutely, um, making a a shame of them through his victory on the cross. And uh, before we get too stuck in the weeds, I, I want us to be reminded of the main theme here. So look at the verse again, if you're there. First Peter 3.19, and really make much of that word proclamation. Okay. Jesus is proclaiming something. This is the ultimate thrust of this, even though we, it's fun to examine the details, the ultimate thrust of this is that Satan and demons are just no match for King Jesus, are they? Uh, Jesus proclaims victory over the demonic realm. They can't thwart his plan. They can't bring him down. They can't take him off his throne. They can't reverse the plan of salvation for the redeemed. He has ultimate triumph over them. And before the cross, we see this in God's activity in the world. I mean, you just look at the flood. He preserved Noah and his family. And God was showing his authority over the world, his lordship over the world, his kingship over the world. And eight people were brought safely through the water as a display of God's power and God's ultimate authority, good authority in the world. And that's where Peter goes in this too, as he talks about Noah and says that these eight persons were brought safely through. And then he gets into some more difficult stuff. But Before we get into the baptism part, let's pause there and see if there's any final thought or question concerning the spirits in prison. Or if we're... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. This should be like number 306 on your list of things to ask, though, okay? Don't make it number one. It shouldn't be a top five. Okay. So... But it's a good question to ask, for sure. Yep. Yep. I've got a list like that. Things I want to ask. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff we won't care about, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, now we're getting into a section, uh, these last couple of verses, about baptism, so it seems, where we have this phrase... This phrase that many of us would be uncomfortable with if, if uh, you know, I just came up to you and just said it, right? If I pat you on the back and just say, hey, baptism now saves you. <laughs> well, yeah, like, well, I'm just quoting the Bible, right? <laughs> so what do we make of this uh, passage? Let's look at these two verses. Verses 21 and 22. Well, let's back up and look at verse 20, Okay. So talking about the spirits, it says in verse 20 that they were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So I do want to pause there one last thing. 
There perhaps is good reason to say that Jesus was making proclamation, especially to those demons who were active in the world right before the time of Noah's flood. Because of the verbiage in verse 20, he's bringing up a time. He says, when, okay, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. But again, we can't know for sure. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So correspondence is being made here to Peter's audience, particularly in reference to their salvation. And that's the first thing I want to highlight. As you look at these verses, uh, Peter isn't making much of the act of believer's baptism here. He's making much of salvation. Peter's making much. He's highlighting salvation. He's not highlighting the water of the flood, is he? He's not saying, think about that water that happened in the flood. He's saying, think about those eight persons who were brought safely through the water. He's putting a focus on salvation and how God is good to save people and to show His sovereignty, His authority, His kindness, His grace and mercy in a fallen world. But we do have to ask, okay, what is this correspondence business? Because that's the start of verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Well, what does baptism correspond to? And to get into this, uh, I think rightly, we've kind of got to do a survey. You see these passages here? We've got to do a survey of some Bible passages and get a good theology of cleansing in our brains here. So I want us all just to look at these together. Let's all go all the way back to Numbers. Numbers 19. Fourth book of the Bible, Numbers 19, and we're going to start at verse 17. 17. Numbers 19, verses 17 through 19. And let's just, what we're doing is we're getting a, a theology of cleansing in the Bible. How can sinful man, filthy sinful man, be considered right and clean before God. Would someone read for us Numbers 19, verses 17 through 19? Okay. All right. So, in this passage, we have an unclean person who's become ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. There's been a dead body which has made the person unclean in the eyes of the law, God's law. For that person then to become clean, certain rules had to be followed, which Andy just read for us. And notice there is activity with water going on here. This person had to be cleansed through a sacrifice and with water. And this was, of course, ceremonial uh, in many ways, but it was physical cleansing with water, and that was required for that person to be restored to a state of cleanness. That person couldn't just say, yeah, I know that happened, but you know what? Uh, God's good with me. I'm clean. How would that have gone over in Israel? <laughs> no, you, 
You don't get to just say, hey, uh, I'm good. You have to hear what Yahweh has commanded and obey, right? Okay? And that's what they had to do. Psalm 51 now. Psalm 51, verse 7, and we're going to see uh, an immediate application of this verse, or this passage we just read, through David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 7. This is David's great psalm of repentance after the event with Bathsheba. And he's repenting to God, and he says in 51.7, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So David, of course, is drawing on the law's requirements for becoming clean. We just read in the passage in Numbers about using hyssop in the ceremony, using water to physically wash. Well, David here isn't talking about that physical act because he's asking God to do this, isn't he? And so he's seeing something spiritual behind the physical act, and he's asking God to directly cleanse him spiritually, imploring God to cleanse him, that God himself would do it. So that's pretty interesting, David recognizing that there was nothing physical that could happen that would take this sin away if God didn't take it away, all right? God had to take the sin away and actually had to cleanse him. That making sense? Following? Okay. Okay, washing and cleansing. We're getting our theology of that. Now, Ezekiel 36, okay? This is a bigger passage we're going to look at. Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 36. So it is a longer section. Maybe someone can take 22 to 29. Who can take 22 to 29? Read that for us. Stacy? And then Jerry, do you want to take 30 to 36? Okay. So go ahead, Stacy. Uh, 29. All right. This is an amazing passage for Israel. What are some of the promises that we see for Israel in here? What are they going to receive from the Lord? Okay. In what sense? Okay, God is going to vindicate His name. And how's He going to do that among them? What's He going to do? By? Okay, good. Okay, so they're going back into their land. There's going to be peace with the nations around them. You see that in there too? There's going to be stability and peace. Boy, it'd be amazing to see that in Israel once for all, wouldn't it? Stability and peace in the land of Israel. Good. There's going to be cleansing. There's going to be salvation, ultimately. 
For Israel, yeah. There are a few things we could list. I'll just put a few there in that box that probably no one can read because it's in pink. But it's a color I hadn't used yet. So, uh, yes, you've got all these things going on with Israel, and you've got that great phrase that I'm sure you recognize in verse 26, that he will give them a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That's what he's going to do in Israel. Isn't that amazing? And he's speaking of all Israel here, isn't he? He's not saying, he's not cutting it down. He's saying it's going to happen in Israel and he's going to put them in their land and they're going to live with this amazing salvation they've been given in rebuilt cities. The places that are ruined and desolate will be rebuilt. Isn't God faithful? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So, now, this is, of course, given to national Israel, to ethnic Israel, but this has begun, in a sense, with the church regarding salvation. Because anybody today who has been saved, you've been given a new heart, haven't you? You've been cleansed by God, haven't you? And you've been saved. And so, um, looking at verse 25, for our purposes this evening, talking about a theology of cleansing, you see the phrasing that God uses here, he's going to sprinkle clean water on Israel, and they're going to be clean. He's going to cleanse them from all their filthiness. Okay, so there's going to be, like with David, a spiritual cleansing happening with Israel. They're going to be converted. So there was a ceremonial cleansing in Numbers 19. That was physical. David appealed for a spiritual cleansing, the forgiveness of his sin. Here in Ezekiel, God is saying he's going to spiritually cleanse all of Israel. They're going to be converted. So this idea of cleansing now is getting more and more expanded as we're studying, going from the physical cleansing to personal forgiveness of sins to even a whole nation being cleansed and converted to the Lord. And the next time, well, not the next time we see it, but the next time we see it on this list is in John 3, this idea of cleansing with water. Now, what do you guys think I'm going to be talking about in John 3? <laughs> what does Jesus say in John 3 that has to do with cleansing? You guys know this. There you go. Talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, okay? Well, before we read that, I, I didn't pause after after those three Old Testament passages. I'll pause now. Any thoughts or questions on the Old Testament passages? Are we still moving along? Huh. Except the sick people had to quarantine in that one, and then in this quarantine that we're dealing with, the healthy people have to quarantine too. <laughs> Health, clean people are declared unclean in today's quarantine. Okay, you guys ready to hear from Jesus? Verses 4 to 10, someone want to read that for us? John 3, verses 4 to 10. Melissa, you get the next one, Joseph. All right, so um, there are different ways that people interpret what water means uh, in verse 5. What are some things you've heard? Baptism. Now, that's a natural, uh, it's a natural question to ask because you see where Jesus uh, asks him a question in verse 
10, the last thing Melissa read. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? What did Israel know about baptism? Yeah, you've got John the, the baptizer. I would say John the Baptist, but we don't know if he's a Southern Baptist or just independent. So, no. uh, so you've got John who had, the, who had his baptism. And then you've got, you know, these references in the law, but boy, that's not baptism as the church practices, is it? And so what did Jesus have in mind here? Did he have in mind being born, being cleansed through John's baptism? That's one possible interpretation. What's another possible interpretation of how you've maybe heard this verse explained? Okay, physical birth, right? We know that uh, when a woman is about to give birth, her water breaks, right? Born through water, okay? That's a possible interpretation. Any other interpretations that perhaps you've heard? There are four or five that float around out there. Well, I only, the only one that's left is the only other one I'm going to present, so I don't, I'm not, not prepared to discuss the other ones. I remember when Lee preached on this years ago, uh, it, there were four, five, or six that he listed off. Um, but another possibility, because let's look at the phrasing again in verse 4, being born of water and the Spirit, there's perhaps the idea of being cleansed with water, Namely, in the Ezekiel 36 sense, okay? So as we think of how uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 that we just looked at, where God says of Israel that I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. We, again, recognize that's happened starting with us. As Gentiles have been grafted in, the church is being built. We're being cleansed by Jesus, aren't we, when we're saved? And so perhaps that's in mind, that there's a spiritual cleansing. Perhaps uh, it is talking about natural birth. I, I would put, out of all the options, last on the list would be baptism, uh, what, what Jesus is talking about here. But, uh, but one of the possibilities would be the Ezekiel 36 type of cleansing. Perhaps that's what he means by being born of water, but uh, we just can't know exactly for sure. Okay? Now, if he is talking about natural birth, then John, that John 3 passage wouldn't fit on this list because he wouldn't be talking about being cleansed. But if he's talking about Ezekiel 36, it fits really well on this list, doesn't it? Because it's a means of cleansing with water. And this is all important to kind of have in your mind as we go back to 1 Peter 3. Yeah. Yeah, so those who say that this is referencing natural birth point to what Jesus says next, where he says, well, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. So water would be the first birth, and Spirit would be that second birth, which I think is a fine interpretation. But So, yeah, well, not, not even uh, just babies. Uh, there are some traditions that sprinkle adults, too. Um, and yeah, Ezekiel 36 would be a passage for that. Also in, it's 1 Peter, yeah, 1 Peter, the beginning of 1 Peter, we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and in Hebrews. Um, well, it's usually, usually the only people who say that Jesus is talking about baptism here are people who believe in baptismal regeneration, which is the belief that 
you are not born of the Spirit until you are baptized in water. So uh, they would go to this and say, look, Jesus says right there, we have to be physically baptized if we want to go to heaven. So, yeah. Okay? All right, Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And Joseph's got this one. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Again, we're building our theology of cleansing. And now we're in the New Testament. We're going to see language about baptism and seeking to define what that means. So when you're ready, Joseph, verses 3 and 4 of Romans 6. All right. When it comes to baptism in the New Testament, how many types of baptism are there? Let's list them off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'm talking about John, John the Baptist baptism. Okay, spirit baptism. And the one we all think of first, right? We we saved it for last, Uh, the water baptism. Okay, so let's let's remove John the Baptist's baptism out of the picture because we know, like in the book of Acts, uh, those believers that Paul stumbled upon and all they knew was John's baptism, well, that that wasn't enough, right? And so Paul went on with them. So let's consider the two, spirit baptism and our physical believer's baptism by immersion in water. Which baptism is Romans 6 talking about? Any takers for the other side out there? All right. Joseph? All right, so what, what we're touching on now is we're starting to confess this is tough. We're starting to realize how spirit baptism and physical believer's baptism, they're pretty closely related, aren't they? Because we've been instructed to be baptized because it reflects something spiritual. And it reflects it so accurately that when just the word baptism is used in the New Testament, and even with descriptions that are in there, we could see it either way. Because the symbol so accurately reflects the spiritual. And that that does make it difficult. Remember that when we get back to 1 Peter. Because it's difficult. This is difficult stuff. Now, I take the view that Romans 6 is talking about spiritual baptism. That it's talking about when we first believe, when we're first converted... We are identified with Christ as we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's, uh, there are a few different places that we can uh, cross-reference, and we'll get there probably next Wednesday at this point. But, uh, but there's a spiritual baptism that takes place at conversion that identifies us with Christ. You are not identified with Christ's burial and resurrection 
when you get physically baptized in water. You are identified with Christ's burial and resurrection when you believe. Okay? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul says, those who you know, have trusted in Christ, they're one spirit with him. That doesn't happen when you go through the water physically. That happens when you're spiritually cleansed. All right? But the physical act is so, it's such a good picture of the, of the spiritual act that it can be difficult to distinguish between the two in a passage like this. Uh, notice in Romans 6, as you just glance down there and run your eyes over it, it doesn't say anything about water, does it? It doesn't say anything about going into water. But it does use the word baptism. All right? So that's what kind of can throw us for a loop, but I believe it's referencing spiritual baptism, not physical water baptism. So, we can just sum it up by saying spiritual baptism at belief. We're baptized into Christ the moment we believe, spiritually. All right? Questions or thoughts on the Romans 6 passage? Verses 3 and 4. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 6, um, that's down toward the end of that chapter. And I, can, and I can read it instead of paraphrasing it. Uh, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Joins himself to the Lord. 17, 6, 17. All right. On the topic of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. I don't have that one on the list. Messed that up. Should have put that on there. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. That's a surprise passage this evening. Again, we're thinking about being cleansed, and we're also thinking about baptism now that we're in the New Testament. Would someone read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 10? Who's got it? Now, that is a weird passage, isn't it? <laughs> they were baptized into Moses, those Israelites. Now, that's strange because you wouldn't read through the book of Exodus and say, uh, and, and I, you haven't. You wouldn't watch the Charlton Heston uh, film. The Red Sea goes and all Israel goes through, and then you wouldn't sit back and say, wow, they just got baptized into Moses even. You would never say that. But here's this language that's being used of Israel. They were baptized into Moses. And so what we can infer here is that there's a type of baptism that took place through the Red Sea. A type of baptism that took place through the Red Sea. Uh, they were, of course, being delivered from Egypt. And that whole deliverance out of Egypt, Israel being delivered out of Egypt, is a type of salvation, right? Spiritual salvation. As he saved them out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, there's a type of baptism going on. Now, uh, baptizing into Moses indicates this isn't the same baptism that we have today when we're baptized into Christ. It's, that's the anti-type. The original type is they went through the Red Sea. That was an aspect of their deliverance was going through the water 
and being brought safely, just like Noah, brought safely through the water. Tough one, though. Thoughts on that? Oh, man. You better believe it. Yeah. How amazing. Yeah, uh, so Jesus Christ is a king, just like David. He's uh, a priest, a high priest even, just like Melchizedek and all the priests of uh, the line of Aaron. And he's a prophet, like Moses. Uh, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, that the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from among your countrymen, and you should listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So, yes, absolutely. There's a type going on, type, anti-type. Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 9, let's see if we can do the Hebrews verses in Titus, and that's where we'll have to stop tonight. But uh, the book of Hebrews, which is after the book of Titus, I got that out of order, sorry about that. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14. All right, Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. Who's got that for us? Okay. All right, so that's a long, complicated sentence, (laughs) verses 13 and 14. But here we're seeing again cleansing going on, and we don't have the word baptism in this. We're not seeing explicitly a picture of baptism, but we are seeing explicitly a picture of cleansing. And there's a comparison, once again, playing on the type, anti-type, Old Testament, New Testament. If the blood of goats and bulls, thinking about all their ceremonies, the ashes of a heifer, going back to that passage that Andy read, you got pouring in water, mixing it with ashes for that ceremonial cleansing. If that stuff sprinkling of that stuff who, on people who have been defiled, if that sanctifies in some sense for the cleansing of the flesh, which of course it did, that's why God commanded it, there was a cleansing through that ritual. The argument is, well, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ do that for you? The sprinkling of the blood of Christ on you spiritually will wholly, completely, thoroughly cleanse you. Isn't that cool? And so there's a cleansing fulfillment that's happening. Think of this ceremonial cleansing in Numbers 19, and that, again, was in the context of people who've been around a dead body. They run clean. Well, um, there are many ways in which just every human being living, of course, is unclean in the sight of God, and we all need to be made clean. Is the answer, well, turn back to Numbers 19 and go find your priest, and he'll make you clean. Well, no and yes. No, we don't obey the Numbers 19 Uh, ceremony and look for a priest in Israel to make us clean, but we go to the final priest, Jesus, who spiritually does make us clean. We run to the great high priest, and he will cleanse us with his own blood, and it's a once-for-all cleansing. Isn't that amazing, right? And the same idea comes up in the next chapter, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. 19 to 22. Would someone read those four verses for us? Hebrews 10, 19 to 22.
right. Sprinkling and washing. Someone summarize that passage for me. What are we ta- what, what's being said here to the believer? What's being said? Very good. That's it. It's as simple as that, isn't it? We are totally clean. Total cleansing by Christ's blood. That's what we see in Hebrews 9 and 10. There's a song that, by a band I like. That there's a line that says, Jesus, your blood has made my hands clean. So that's the idea. We are totally clean, totally cleansed by Christ's substitutionary death. There is no ritual for you to follow to get clean spiritually with God. Now, is there a baptism that you're commanded to participate in? Yes, but that'll have to wait till next week. We're going to stop with Titus. Go back a couple of books to Titus, chapter 3. Titus, chapter 3. One of the most amazing verses in the New Testament. We'll look at verses 4 and 5. And I'll read these because I really like them. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. 3, 4, 5. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So through the Holy Spirit, we have washing and regeneration taking place, renewal from God the Spirit, happening at the moment of conversion in the heart of the believer. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So we see here explicitly spirit baptism. Again, the word baptism isn't used, but don't you agree that's what's going on? (laughs) <laughs> a spirit baptism being washed, yeah. And you could say that about the Hebrews 10 passage too because the verse 22 of Hebrews 10, it didn't just say that our hearts were sprinkled, it says having our bodies washed with pure water. Well, that's obviously, you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling down next to your bed and then a bucket of water out of heaven just comes over you, right? So there's something spiritual about that. Even though it says body, There's, in God's sight, your body is totally clean because of what He has done to clean you, to make you righteous, right? So there's a little bit of a guided tour of some passages from the Old Testament through the New on cleansing. We've got just a few minutes left. I can't really get into the next thing, but I can answer some questions or field your ideas here if we want to do that for a couple minutes. Well, then let me just ask you this, just so we're all on the same page. Um, You know, Peter's going to be talking about Noah. He is talking about Noah in the passage we're in. Um, When was Noah saved? Okay, turn back to Genesis. We got... 
Turn back to Genesis. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Genesis. Let's look at just one thing real quick. Genesis chapter 6. Andy, are you there? Not, not like in the room, but are you uh, in Genesis 6? <laughs> Can you read verses 5 to 8? Noah was saved right there. Are you reading? Eight. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was saved right there. That's, he, he was a recipient of God's grace right there. God decided, in speaking in time, because we're creatures and that's all we can do, from God's perspective, it's outside of time, but right then and there, Noah was going to be saved in his family, his household. Right there. So, when it says in our text in 1 Peter 3, Noah was brought safely through water, don't read that as he got saved when the rest of the world drowned and he was on the boat. He found favor way before that, didn't he? He found favor before he knew he found favor, didn't he? When, when was Israel saved when they were being delivered out of Egypt? Was it when they crossed through the Red Sea or was it before that? It was certainly before that, wasn't it? Going through the Red Sea, being baptized into Moses, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, that wasn't what saved them. God had called them His people. He made, well, He made them a people. He called them His people. Even though they were sold into bondage and slavery, He said He was going to deliver them, and He did. And going through the Red Sea was just a demonstration of their salvation, wasn't it? It's not what saved them. God had chosen them before that. And so, when you think about spirit baptism and physical baptism, it's so silly that people equate physical baptism with the moment of salvation. In these examples that uh, we have in the Old Testament and in the New, you're saved by God's favor coming into your life, and that physical act is a reflection of what has already taken place. That's the way it was with Noah. That's the way it was with Israel. That's the way it is with us. Okay. So, Andy. Yes. In detail. Yes. It's not a fortune cookie thing, is it? God's not saying... Uh, there will be a people and it will go well with them. <laughs> right? Like they say in the Panda Express cookie. No, he gives a very detailed type uh, and shadow and prophecies. Okay? All right. Thanks for hanging with me. And thanks for letting me just... Now I've got a head start on next week. This is great. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your amazing work in the world and in your church. We ask your blessing on us as we leave here this evening, that you would empower us to live spirit-filled lives that honor you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.